Redemption Church, and I've had the privilege, and I, I use that word very specifically, because it has been a privilege to walk with you through some of those conversations and transitions, and I'm just excited about what God continues to do at Redemption Church, amen? Okay, half of you are, uh, that's good, and so the rest of have will be later, but um, good to be back with you, it's been a little bit of a while since I've been here, um, and you know, um, when Jimbo gives you an assignment to preach, he actually gives you a text assignment, so a lot of times I just get to go in and preach a, maybe a message on missions or something that I've done before. Uh, he said, Rick, I want you to teach John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And that's, I certainly don't mind being given that assignment because it's such a beautiful and theologically rich part of the Bible. Uh, we call this the prologue of John. And I know that you're framing this series and this series of messages through the Christmas season called the fullness of time, the fullness of time. You know, the scripture says in Galatians chapter 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. That's good news. That's the gospel, isn't it? So in the fullness of time, what is, what are we, how are we kind of putting uh, this text here this morning in the middle of that series? What it means is that the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus coming from heaven to earth to redeem mankind, it's kind of the big moment, it's kind of the big move of God to redeem and bring back to himself a lost humanity. Um, so, uh, you know, th- what we're going to focus in on this morning is really uh, the big move, the big thing that God has done so that you and I might not only be saved, but be the adopted children of God. So, uh, one of the things I love about the Bible, uh, not just in this passage, but in all over the, the Bible, is it doesn't avoid the major issues or the big questions of life, does it? In fact, the the Bible kind of runs head on to some of the biggest challenges and the biggest questions that we wrestle with. It's not just a, a, a book of pithy sayings or religious quotes or truisms. It talks about where we've come from, what's wrong with the world, how's it all gonna end, what's my place in all of this, and and what do we do about evil in the world? And the passage in John that we're going to look at this morning, the prologue, it presents God's big address of these biggest questions and issues of life. In fact, the questions don't get really any bigger than the ones we're going to talk about this morning. In this particular passage we're looking at today, the Apostle John is introducing Jesus not just in a biography biography way, like he was born here and then this happened and this happened and this happened. He actually produces him as an answer to the theological and philosophical questions that really gnaw at our soul. And he offers Jesus as the biggest solution to the world's problems. I know it's your custom to stand when we read the text. I'll invite you to stand with me. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the Pew Bible there in front of you. You can grab that, and it is on page 735. Page 735. We'll begin in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, whom believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not from blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of only the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. You know, if you study all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, um, and, and right here in this first section, John is different than any of the other four, the other synoptic Gospels, as they call Matthew and Luke open up with the Christmas story. They open up with the nativity scene and all of that, you know, the angels and the shepherds and all of that. Mark opens up with Jesus' baptism, uh, and that's kind of the starting point of his public ministry. John goes all the way back before creation. It's a very different kind of book. We believe it's the last, chronologically, it's the last book that was written, the last of the Gospels. And it, uh, 90% of the book of John is not found in, either of the, in any of the other three Gospels. So it's a very different kind of presentation. And John is not speaking just to a Jewish audience or just to a Greek or a Roman audience. He's speaking to the world. He's talking about universal issues. Now, the human author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is the Apostle John, the church history tells us very clearly, very back to early times in the church, who the apostle, who the writer is, and it's the apostle John, not John the Baptist, just to make that clarification, who's mentioned in the text. But John, the author of the book, never refers to himself by his name in the book. He always calls himself the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. Do you notice that? If you've read the book of John, you know this. Now, why did he do this? Well, Two reasons. One, I think it's just humble. He's just being humble. It's a sign of humility because while he's the writer, the book is not about him. The book is about Jesus. But there's another reason, I believe, and that is when he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, we can all relate to that, can't we? We're all the disciple who Jesus loves if you're a follower of Jesus. And so we can read ourselves into this book when we understand that, that even the author, the human author, refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. The Apostle John is also called the Apostle of Love because he mentions the word love 80 times in his writings in the Bible, in this book and in the epistles. He also uses the word believe 100 times uh, and wants us to believe Christ so that we can have a loving relationship with him. That's kind of the big arcing theme that John's hitting on. He also uses the word truth about 25 times here in the gospel. Here's, Here's the thing. John is interested in introducing us to the truth so that we might believe, and because of our belief in the truth, have a loving relationship with God. That's that's the essence of the gospel in the book of John. In this particular passage, God is answering all of the major questions about the universe, about life, about Jesus. So rather than come up with some fancy outline, I, you can't beat what the Holy Spirit has done in outlining this text, and so I'm not going to try. Uh, I'm just going to simply draw out a couple of observations in the form of answers to big questions, because I really believe 
we see these answers so clearly here in the text. And uh, I simply want to take a few of these verse by verse and just help, you, help all of us see them in maybe a fresh light. So here's the first question, question number one. If you've got, you've got a thing in your worship guide, if you want to jot down uh, some notes, this will be a real simple uh, way to approach this. The first question is this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's an important question, isn't it? And right there in verse 1, he starts, in the beginning was the Word. In the very first sentence of the very first chapter, John already answers a real big question because he introduces Jesus as the real answer to any and all human need if we will admit it, believe in him, and receive him. John calls Jesus the Logos. Now, in the wisdom of that day, Logos means the ordering principle of the universe, the first cause, God himself. John uses this term, if you go back and look at verse 1, three times right there in the first verse. The Word, the Word, the Word. It's this threefold presentation of Jesus Christ as the Word, the communication, the expression of God himself. Right there in the first line of John's Gospel. Jesus was in the beginning with God. He was not a God, as some cults would say. The grammar of this sentence in the original language does not allow for that translation. So if anybody ever comes to you and they say, we believe that Jesus is a God among other gods, that is not what the Bible teaches. It just simply is wrong. Uh, Jesus is not a God. He is God, period. There's a big difference. That little article makes a big difference, doesn't it? Not a God, but God. In other words, when you see Jesus, you are seeing God. Colossians chapter 1 refers to Jesus as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In Colossians 1, it uses that word icon in the original language. Just like on a computer, you have icons as you hit the button, and everything behind that button opens up to you. Jesus is the portal. He's the access point. And when you access Jesus, you access all of who God is. That's remarkable, because if Jesus is God, who existed before creation then you and I are subject to him and we are made in his image. And the reason that's important is because we run into trouble when we try to make God into our image. Anybody ever try to, I mean, maybe subtly in our lives, we kind of want God to fit in our box or do it our way or kind of get on board with our plan. That happens sometimes. It reminds me of the little boy in Sunday school who was drawing feverishly, kind of coloring a page, and the teacher comes up to him and says, oh, tell me, tell me what you're drawing. And the little boy says, oh, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher says, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that's possible because nobody really knows what God looks like. And without stopping or even looking up, the little boy says, well, they will when I'm done. Uh, you know? <laughs> we all have kind of, some of you will get that later. Uh, so We all have this kind of kind of impulse to kind of want to make God our in our way, in our image. And all the while, he is the preeminent incarnate Christ. He is before all, above all. And so we cannot create in our, God in our image because we are created in his image. Now, kind of a, a sub-question, this is still in question one, but it's kind of a secondary question or a second part of the question, is was Jesus human or was Jesus divine? Was he man or was he God? Verse 14, down at the, towards the bottom of this text, actually clears that up very, very clearly for us. 
when it says that it says that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. This is a central truth in the Christian faith that the eternal unchanging God entered into his creation in human form. Part of what John is doing here is fighting against the early church heresy of Gnosticism. And without going into all of the parts of that, uh, it was an early uh, church heresy just that John would have been addressing in his day. And it taught that, uh, one of the things that it taught was that Jesus was only seemed to be human. That he actually had a divine form that just appeared to be human form. So of course he could walk on water. Of course he could heal people. Of course he could uh, say peace to the winds and seas and they would obey him. Of course all these things could happen because he wasn't really human. Right here in the first section of the gospel, John confronts that heresy and says, no, the word became what? Flesh. Flesh. Just like your flesh and my flesh. He was fully human just as he was fully God. And John wants us to know that the infinite became finite. The invisible became visible. God becomes a human person in the flesh. God is not just a force. He's not just a thought or a concept. Truth is not just an idea. It is a person. In fact, later on in John 14, Jesus will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Just as the word of the Lord came to the prophets of the Old Testament, the the word of God, the communication of God, the expression of God comes to God's people in the person of of Jesus Christ. And if you want to see the fullest expression, if you're looking for God, if you want to say, what is God like? Look at Jesus. He is the Word who became flesh. It could not be any clearer, folks. John is so clear in his presentation of who Jesus is. Let's look at the second question. Where did the universe come from? I mean, just a little small questions, nothing big today. Just who is Jesus? Where did all this stuff come from? That sort of thing. Verse 3 says, all things were created through him. Did you see that? Here's what that means. You have never been anywhere or talked to a person who wasn't created by him. Everything you've ever touched, even the feelings we've had, everything we've thought, everything that we've experienced was created originally by him. This is an important answer because there are many in the world who would say that all of life is just natural processes, natural random evolution. And that you know, over billions and billions of years, that just the particles uh, that existed, we're not real sure where they came from, but they, they kind of just organized themselves in such a way randomly that they uh, became something very complex like our universe that we know it today. And here's, so here's kind of a key scientific idea or thought about that. If given enough time, can natural processes, just random natural processes, be responsible for animate life? Life. Can, can just molecules and atoms kind of just arrange themselves, if given enough time, mind you, can they arrange themselves to a point where we see the reality that we experience today? Well, a few years ago, the the Withstar Institute assembled over 50 scientists, mathematicians, physicists, and biologists for a whole summer to answer that question. If given enough time, can randomness produce complexity? That was the key question. And here's what they said. I'm going to quote their findings. Based on our understanding of the laws of chemistry and physics and what we know about randomness, there is no way that the complexity of life could just come about. For randomness to be responsible for life is a mathematical impossibility. That's not just a a faith statement. That's a scientific statement. 
that, that when these scientists got together and said, you know, could, could the universe have just come about, if given enough time, and every time they'd run the numbers, they'd run out of time. It just can't happen. There's just not a way in which that can happen. What they were really doing is echoing what a, a clergyman and a philosopher named William Paley had said back in 1802, and it's, it's kind of been a pretty, um, it's the teleological uh, argument for, for creation, and it basically goes like this, and here's the 21st century version of it. I want you to look at your wrist or look down and find your watch or your iPhone, okay? Now, everybody either has one or two of those things. Otherwise, you would have no idea how to tell time, okay? So find whatever device that you would tell time with, whether it be a, on your watch, an Apple Watch or your mechanical watch. You got that? Hold it up for me just for a second. Okay, all right. Now, I want you to look at that device for a second. I want to ask you a question. Um, let me just suppose for a second that over billions of years... The molecules around the earth just kind of organize themselves into that watch or that iPhone. And so that if you were just walking through the church one day and you found your phone and you found your watch just laying down here on the floor, and you could pick up and go, oh, well, that just those molecules just randomly put themselves together that way. Don't buy that if anybody's selling that to you. Okay? I just don't have enough faith to believe that. That's just a that is a, an idea that's a little too far of a bridge for me to believe. It's just impossible. Now, think about how much more complex the human eye is than an iPhone. Think about how much more complex the universe is than a simple mechanical device. And there's just no possible way, for He created everything. Everything is created through Him. This passage clearly tells us that all things were created through Jesus. Let's look at the third question. Not only where did things come from, but more specifically, how did life begin? Where did life come from? Things were not alive, and now they're alive. How did that happen? Well, verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John not only tells us where everything comes from, but now he tells us where life began. It says, In him, speaking of Jesus, there is life. He is the source of life. He is the fountainhead from which life flows. Later in chapter 14, as I referenced earlier, Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Life is a person. The Bible has different words for the English word life. And so I want to differentiate what Jesus and what John is presenting Jesus as here in John chapter 1. Uh, there's three different words uh, that are used commonly in, in the Greek language to talk about life. The first is bios, B-I-O-S, bios. And that's life like we would talk about biology, you know, animals and bugs and just nature and critters and, and things like that. So that's bios life is just natural life. And then there's psyche life. Uh, it's where we kind of get our word psychology. And that's kind of your inner life. That's your thought life, your, your, your ability to kind of have feelings and thought, your mental life. And, uh, and then there's the, the final life, which is zoe life, zoe life. And zoe life is the most common used word in the New Testament to talk about life. It's what he's talking about here. It's a theological term that speaks of not just the fact that life exists, but it's a quality of life that's different. It comes, it's life that comes from God. Yes, it's eternal, but it's the, not just the quantity of life, but the quality of life because it stems from God. We have abundant life because we have fellowship with God. The life that Jesus came to bring us is not just biological life, friends. And it's not just kind of a mental a thought life. The life that Jesus brings to us 
means we can exist forever and ever and ever with him. That is the life. It's called abundant life. And sometimes the translators struggle with just how to describe it exactly, but it's not just mere heart-pumping life. It is spiritual life. It is eternal life with the King of kings and Lord of lords. Ephesians chapter 2 says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. With Christ, even though we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. Jesus brings us life because we are not just spiritually sick people. We are spiritually dead people. And the message of the gospel is that it does not make us better. It makes us new. It makes us alive again. And you and I would have just as much chance of raising ourselves from the dead as we would to saving ourselves and giving ourselves that kind of life. Only that, that kind of life only comes through Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the life that you and I so desperately, desperately need. Let's look at question number four. How can we overcome evil? How, how, what's going to happen with all the evil in the world? I mean, isn't it terrible every time you, you have breaking news on one of the news channels, it just breaks your heart. There's just a lot that is wrong in our world. Look, at, look back at verse 5, though. It says, the light overcame the darkness. John introduces this dual concept of light and dark here as it's describing the role that the Logos was going to play in the world. Any person who is aware of the world can easily see the evil that exists. The world as it exists now, friends, is broken. Sin has touched and tainted every part of our reality. The world is not as evil as it could be, but there is no part of our existence that is immune from the impact of evil and sin. Our bodies are broken. You have diseases. You have decline. Our natural world is broken. You have fires. You have tornadoes. You have hurricanes. You have earthquakes. Our social systems are broken. You have violence. You have war. You have racism. You have poverty. Our economic systems are broken. You have greed. You have theft. So how should we respond to the evil in the world with all of this brokenness around us and brokenness in us? John uses the imagery of light and darkness to talk about this. Have you ever tried to fight darkness Have you ever tried to struggle against darkness? You really can't overcome darkness by yourself, can you? I mean, you can stand in the middle of a dark room and swing your fists at it if you want to, and you can curse it if you want to. It's not going to change very much. What you have to do to overcome darkness is turn on the light. And what you and I have to do in our lives is not struggle against darkness, not swing our fists at it, not curse it, but simply bring and declare the light of Jesus Christ into every single corner of reality because he is the light that can overcome darkness. And here's the thing, light beats darkness every time. Anytime light and dark are having a battle, light wins. There's never a point when you introduce light into darkness that darkness overcomes the light. Light overcomes dark every time. I think John knew the picture he was trying to paint here. Jesus is the light of the world, and that light overcomes the darkness. Think about this. Jesus Jesus traveled all of the way from heaven to bring us that light. He came from a place that was lit by the very presence 
of Almighty God into a dark, broken, sinful world. I want to unpack that just for a little bit. When we look at the mission of Jesus, we're talking about the incarnation, Jesus coming from heaven to earth. I want us to, to bring that you know, more of an understandable concept for a moment. When you look at his mission, we see that he was sent. Later in John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus would say to the, to the early church, to the disciples, he would say, just as the Father has sent me into this world, I'm sending you. Jesus will say that uh, to them actually several times. And so I want to think about that. Think, think with me for a second. Jesus was sent from the glory of heaven to the slums of a backwater Jewish outpost. He was sent, sent from all the peace and joy of heaven to a noisy, dirty, sinful world. He was sent from the safety of the angelic guards to a place where there was danger everywhere. He was sent from a place with no needs to a place of great and constant need. He was sent from a place where there was no sin and no death to a culture with pervasive disease and a culture of death. Listen, no one has ever gone further, bridged more of a gap to bring a message and to bring help, healing, and life than Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one whom we call our Lord and our Savior, the one that we follow he is a missionary. He was sent from heaven to earth to overcome evil, and he was sent on a mission. The Logos, the Word, is the greatest missionary of all time, for his mission spanned all the distance from heaven to a fallen world. So if you and I call ourselves followers of Jesus, then our lives should somehow pattern that of one who is being sent into a world. One who is living the life of a missionary. That takes many different expressions in your neighborhood, in your homes, in your school, in the marketplace, the ball field, everywhere that we go, in the marketplace. And so our lives somehow should be marked with the qualities and the characteristics of being on that mission, just as Jesus, the Word, was sent into the world. And the opposite is true. If, if our life does not reflect that in any way, if we look at who we are and the way we spend our time and our talent and our treasure, and none of it is for the kingdom and the glory of God, and none of it is kind of under the, the mission and the banner of Jesus, then it's fair for us to ask us, are we truly on his mission? Are we truly following his work in the world? It would be, let me, let me illustrate it this way. It would be like if we go out here after church today, and we go out to uh, Lane Avenue here, and there's a big boat sitting in the middle of the highway. Not on a trailer, just sitting on the pavement. We would think something has gone terribly wrong because that's not supposed to be where a boat is, right? A boat is supposed to be... This is group participation time. Water, right, yeah. Boat's supposed to be in the water. And so if a boat's not in the water, then something's wrong. Can I just say, the intended place for you and for me to be is in the world. Why? Because for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, please hear me. No boat has ever sunk because it was in the water. It sinks because there's too much water in the boat. You and I are supposed to be in the world, but the world is not supposed to be in us. If we follow Jesus, he was sent into the world. That's not just like an idea. That means literally following him into the world to take the light, 
that he's given to us, his authority, his presence into a lost and broken and dark world. And light beats darkness every time. Let's look at question number five. What happens when I accept Christ? What happens when I, it actually addresses that right here. Look down in verse 11 and 12, particularly verse 12. It says he came into the world, some did not receive him, but some did. And then it says, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. The Gospels teach us that Jesus was accepted by all of the natural order. If you look at the Gospels, you'll find that water would hold him up because he wanted it to when he could walk on it. Uh, demons would, would shudder and, and respond to his commands. Uh, the winds and seas would, would obey everything that he said. All of the natural world would obey him and receive him. Why? Because he created them. And yet when it comes to, to mankind, when it comes to humans who have a free will, some received him and some rejected him. And so he had this mixed response. And it says, to those who received him, he gave the right or the authority to become children of God. Do you know what that means? I love this part. you know what that means? I love just the, the idea of being called a child of God. It, it means that, that there's, there's something um, big about the idea of the gospel, that it doesn't just get us saved. It gets us, in other words, it doesn't just get us out of something. It gets us to something. Now think about it this way. I want to use an illustration from our legal system. The idea of the gospel, the idea of the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us and Jesus paying the price. And as Wes said earlier, that, that Jesus was born with a purpose. He was born with a mission. And there's always a cross looming in the horizon of the mission of Jesus in the earth. Did you know um, what that means is that, that if we were to go into a courthouse and we were to stand before the judge and the judge would, would, would pronounce sentence over us that we're guilty because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life. And we get that penalty kind of put on us and then Jesus raises his hand and says, but judge, I've paid the penalty. Look at the cross. I've already paid everything necessary so that these who have committed sins can now be called righteous, declared righteous. You see, we are not righteous when, when we are saved. We are declared righteous. There's a difference because we don't become righteous ourselves. We simply receive the covering of his righteousness upon our lives. It's kind of what the old hymn says, you know, being washed in the blood, that, that whole idea. So we receive his right. And so the, the, the judge brings the gavel down and says, you're declared innocent. You're declared righteous because of the payment that's been paid. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen. But hey, hey, listen up. That's not all. We're not done. Because then we leave that room, we go out into the hallway, we go across the hall into family court. And then Jesus goes up to the judge and says, Judge, see these here? They've been declared righteous. I want to bring these into my forever family. I want to make them part of, of, of my, my joint heirs with you. And we become, and so the judge, the judge brings down the gavel and says, you're now part of the family of God. That's good news, friends, that not only can our sins be forgiven, can, not only can we be declared righteous under the, under the payment that was paid by Jesus at Calvary, but we are called 
men and women, boys and girls, children of God. That's something to get excited about this Christmas. That's the whole message of Jesus coming as a little baby because he grows up, goes to a cross, and pays the price for you and I to be, here's the word, redeemed, brought into his family. That's good news. That's the gospel. I want to end with a a story that you're probably familiar with. Um, Earlier this year, June and July, happened over a span of a couple of weeks, there were 12 boys ages 11 through 17, along with their 25-year-old coach, who became trapped in a cave in Thailand. Do you remember that? And they did not know how they were going to get them out, and there was water was coming in there. It was the rainy season was starting, and uh, they were not looking good in a dark cave miles deep into the earth. And over 10,000 people and over 100 expert divers joined in the cause to rescue these boys and their coach. And in the planning and the preparation and all that was necessary, there was even one fatality, a 37-year-old Thai Navy SEAL named Saman Kunan died of of asphyxiation in the cave after delivering supplies of air. Now think about this for a moment, this picture. These boys huddled down in this cave with their coach. They had no hope. There was no way they were going to claw their way out of there. They didn't have the skills. They didn't have the, the abilities. They didn't even probably know the way to get out. It was dark. They were scared. They had no hope on their own. But that was not the end of the story. Because someone up there loved them enough to send somebody to where they were to bring them to life, to, to rescue them. And why does a story like that touch us so much? I mean, yes, we're, we're concerned, we're empathetic for these boys and their family, but you realize that's just a picture of the gospel. Friend, you and I have no hope on our own. We are down in a cave, we are lost, we are dark, we have no ability to claw our way back to freedom. But praise God, he loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would believe in him would not perish but have what? Eternal life. There is hope because, not because of our ability, not because of our righteousness, not because of our skill and wisdom, but because of his great love for us and the grace and the mercy and the truth that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And because of that, I don't know how you walked in here today. Life may be going okay, may not be. It's not the end. It's not the end of the story. Because he's the author. He gets to write how the story goes. But we have to participate. You know, what, what if, those, what if those, those rescuers got down to that cave and those boys just said, nah, I'm good. Y'all head on back out. Can you imagine? God has sent a rescuer to us. His name is Jesus, the Logos, the Word. And he became flesh and dwelled among us. And to those who believed and received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we confess right now that without you we have no hope. We have no chance of life, of overcoming darkness, of over, even understanding who we are. 
Lord, we'll be deceived. and We'll be in a dark place without you in our life. And so, Lord, as we respond to your word this morning, we just want to confess you, confess our need for you. We want to accept you. We want to believe you. Because when we believe you, we come into your family. And so, Lord, no matter how we um, walked in here today, we can walk out changed because of what you have done, not because of what we do, but because of who you are. Friend, as we enter into a time of response, we're going to just uh, sing a song. It'll be just a time to say, okay, what does this message mean for my life? And I just want to say, whatever God's putting on your heart, the right time to do the right thing is right now.